From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Patsy Whitaker-Kuzwara, VOA White House correspondent, and Shana Estulin, political and foreign affairs correspondent. Welcome, Shana and Patsy. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks, Kim. Happy to be here as well. Well, here are the issues. President Joe Biden faces mounting pressure over the withdrawal of American forces in Afghanistan and the swift collapse of the government in Kabul. The U.S.-led war in Afghanistan began with the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on the United States and the U.S. driving out the Taliban that gave al-Qaeda safe harbor. Twenty years later, the war has ended with the Taliban back in power in Kabul. Biden says U.S. troops will stay in Afghanistan until all Americans are out. In Haiti, at least over 1,900 people are known to have died in Saturday's powerful 7.2 magnitude earthquake. The earthquake compounds problems facing the nation, which is already reeling from a political crisis following the assassination of the president last month. The Biden administration is recommending booster doses for most Americans who received a coronavirus vaccine to combat waning immunity and the prevalence of the Delta variant. In a joint statement, top administration health officials said people would need boosters beginning eight months after the second dose of either a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Patsy, I will start with you. On the U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, President Biden, he has received backup from two key figures, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who blasted out talking points to Democratic offices. However, for the most part, Biden's allies have been critical. So what is the atmosphere like now at the White House on the issue? Well, really, it's a huge headache for everybody at the White House. This is, of course, a huge political storm for President Joe Biden. And despite the, the fact that he does have some Democratic allies trying to defend his policy or to withdraw with the timetable that he gave, as well as the really just messy and chaotic execution of the withdrawal. But in fact is that the anger has been pretty much bipartisan. He has been getting pushback from uh, lawmakers from his own party, as well as the Republicans. So, for example, the Senate of the Foreign Relations Committee basically just said that, you know, this is this is unacceptable. This is Senator Mendes, Senator Robert Menendez, sending out an email, a letter to him, a statement saying that I am disappointed that the Biden administration clearly did not accurately assess the implications of a rapid U.S. withdrawal. So this is a huge political headache that they have to deal with. We still don't know what the long-term implications are. We already see that his popularity rating has decreased by about 7% in just a matter of days. This is the lowest in his presidency so far. So we'll see how much of this impacts him politically as well as in terms of U.S. credibility ab abroad. Now, I think both of you may have heard how many critics have likened this to Joe Biden's Saigon moment. This is that famous picture of American embassy personnel as well as Vietnamese, South Vietnamese allies being lifted out of the helicopter 
during the fall of Saigon in 1975. And many are thinking that, you know, ahead, what can we expect from the U.S. in terms of our commitment towards democracy, towards human rights, towards commitment to allies. But of course, the White House has been pushing back and saying that we have spent 20 years in Afghanistan, countless, you know, thousands of American lives and, you know, by some measures over a trillion dollars, perhaps close, closer to two trillion dollars. So we have given our commitment and we have given our sacrifice. And as the president said, this is the time to leave. And even though he acknowledged that the withdrawal was messy, he stands squarely behind his decision to leave Afghanistan. Just from a political point of view, this is a very big gamble for Biden. As Patsy mentioned, his approval ratings have dropped, especially with the searing images that are coming out of people desperate to leave. But he does appear to be taking the long view here and, and hoping that history will judge him in a different way, in the same way that Vietnam was so embarrassing and devastating for the United States. But Kamala Harris is going to Vietnam as a friend. Vietnam really changed its relationship with the United States in the four decades since the U.S. left. And you can even see from a new poll that came out, even with the chaotic withdrawal and the hit to America's reputation abroad, two-thirds of Americans still support the withdrawal, still say that it was not worth it. $2 trillion was spent in this war. Over 2,000 American service members were killed, not to mention tens of thousands more Afghans' lives lost. What Biden is arguing to prop up a corrupt and incompetent government. And in general, what, you, what you've been hearing from the Biden administration really since day one is that their national security moves have to be done in order to directly help people here in the United States. And fighting a forever war, they argue, goes against that, doesn't help Americans here. So this could work in Biden's favor down the line if things sort of calm down in Afghanistan. But on the other hand, as many people are predicting, if the Taliban severely restricts women's rights, if it becomes a breeding ground for terrorists, it could ultimately haunt Biden and hurt him politically as well. Yes, and I guess we can look at it. Did the Biden administration accurately assess the implications of a rapid withdrawal. And I guess if he's looking at it into the future, then perhaps they did accurately assess this. Well, I think they did have a lot of intelligence that were telling them, telling the president, that the Kabul government will hold for several more months, by some estimate, 18 months even. You know, that's a, obviously a very optimistic assessment. And there was also an expectation that the Afghan military would not have crumbled as quickly just in a matter of days. And that was the expectation. And so the ideal for the Biden administration was that if they could do the withdrawal in an orderly, safe manner, and that is part of the reason why they did not want to do it sooner than they have, because as the president said, that the Afghan government requested them not to do that, not to create the sort of mass exodus that would create a crisis of confidence. That was the idea and that was the goal. And obviously that did not happen. It happened very chaotic and messy and you know horrifying and we all watched it. But going ahead, really the best that the US can hope for at this point in the short term is the safe evacuation of all Americans who want to leave, the safe evacuation of um, Afghani allies. These are, of course, the uh, CIVs, the special immigrant visa recipients, the translators, the people who supported media organizations and NGOs and so forth. If we can get those people in a safe way out of Afghanistan, as many as possible until the end 
of August and possibly even after, as the president said in an interview with the ABC News, then that is already a good start. And then beyond that, having in some way negotiations with the Taliban to create the kind of government that's not perhaps too repulsive to the West, that, as Shana said, respects the rights of women. But of course, that's so many unknowns. And so now the short-term operational focus is really just to get Americans and Afghan allies out of there. Well, what is the process then to ensure that they will get out of there, especially now with the embassy there saying, well, they, they cannot guarantee a safe passage to even the airport? Yeah, that's what we've been, we heard from military officials, that they can't sort of go into Afghanistan and pull people out, although other countries seem to be doing that successfully, like the Brits and the French. So far, U.S. officials say they've gotten around 3,000 people out. They hope to get that number up to 9,000 people a day. There's about 10 to 15,000 Americans still in Afghanistan, tens of thousands more Afghan allies who are in terrible danger if they stay. So this is a big sort of mission, and it will look terrible for the Biden administration if they leave anybody behind, especially given we've seen videos of Taliban forces attacking people who are trying to get out. Biden is getting a lot of criticism right now, especially on this issue that the State Department and U.S. officials sort of got bogged down in red tape when they should have just made this process much easier, just get people onto planes, get them out. Although Biden is getting a lot of criticism, you're also hearing that there's a lot of blame to go around, not just for Biden, but really starting with Bush for invading Afghanistan and then getting distracted by invading Iraq and moving precious military resources to that conflict. And then the administrations that followed, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration. The Washington Post published a few years ago what they call the Afghanistan Papers that really detail very troubling sort of ways how military and U.S. government officials lied and covered up over 20 years what was actually happening in Afghanistan, that they knew from the beginning that this was not a winnable war. I mean, they have recorded statements by military officials saying, we don't know what we're doing here, time and time again saying that. So they knew that this was not a winnable war and that there was no real long-term goal here, that there was no belief that this could be won. And so what you're hearing now from folks is that people within the national security arena, not everybody got it wrong, but enough people got it wrong, really need to take a hard look at themselves and, and look in the mirror. How did we get here with over $2 trillion spent, over 2,000 American lives lost, so many more Afghan lives lost, for the country to be toppled in just 11 days? Yeah, I think just to add on to the point that Sheena was making about, you know, all these miscalculations and wrong decisions and cover-ups over the past 20 years. I think when we're looking at this current Afghanistan chaos, we have to look at it in at least two separate buckets, right? The first one is the decision to withdraw, which most Americans support, as Shana said. And the second one is just a manner. You know, why is it so chaotic? Couldn't have been done better. And I think if it had been done better, I think this would have been a foreign policy win for Biden. Instead, this is now the, the worst foreign policy crisis for his young presidency. And, and this is truly an embarrassment for Biden, who, of course, prides himself as being a foreign policy president, as somebody who has been a member of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee for many, many years. And Patsy, to that point, how has the criticism of the Biden administration affected his legacy regarding Afghanistan? Yeah, well, that's something that needs to be seen, obviously, as time goes by. First, we need to see whether or not the administration and the U.S. military is able to organize a safe or safer, safer than the past few days, orderly and more orderly evacuation of the people out of Afghanistan. But in terms of his 
legacy, the second part of it is how does the U.S. manage the situation in Afghanistan in the future of Afghanistan, where you'll have China coming in, Russia coming in, Iran coming in, and the U.S. having a more hands-off approach, perhaps, without our presence on the ground. And just see, as Shana said, whether or not it will become a breeding ground for terrorists, whether the rights of women and girls will be respected. But the president himself, at this point, is still very defiant. He rejected criticism of his leadership in his interview with ABC News. He said that it was not a failure and, you know, this, of course, falls flat in the face of what he says himself when he has repeatedly promised the withdrawal would be orderly, deliberate, and safe, and that there were no circumstances that Afghanistan would suddenly fall to the Taliban, something that he said as recently as last month. Also, looking at it from a humanitarian aspect, and you mentioned how it is affecting women and girls, for women and girls, the return of the Taliban could mean a return to a life that women elsewhere would not even want to imagine. So I just wanted to get both of your thoughts on this potential loss for women and girls. I mean, this is, you know, such a big story here. Aside from this sort of chaos and the withdrawal is what is going to happen to the women of Afghanistan? So much has changed in the past 20 years since the Taliban were in control. You have a whole generation of Afghan women who were able to go to school, become lawyers and doctors and government officials. And they're terrified that they're going to be forced back into the Stone Ages again, and that all of these hard-won sort of accomplishments are going to be cruelly taken away. Now, the Taliban, they're taking a more conciliatory tone. They're promising to respect women's rights to some extent. But there are already reports coming out of Taliban fighters beating and brutalizing people and forcibly taking women to be their brides in rural areas. And that certainly shows a different story than what they're promising. On the other hand, the Taliban does need international support and aid. So countries are watching very closely and waiting to see what they actually do. Although you know, people who are very smart and have been watching this conflict for a while and what the Taliban have been doing for a while, they're not very optimistic that the Taliban will actually follow through on their promises. Yep, and I think you're absolutely right, Jaina. We are seeing this spectacular PR blitz, I would call it, from the Taliban who are going to, for example, to hospitals and meeting with nurses and female doctors and saying that you are our sisters and we need your help in the future of Afghanistan. We are going to let you work. They're saying that girls can go to school and women can go to work. So they're, they're sort of trying to portray themselves as a very different and, you know, more progressive, more forward-looking members of the international community that respects the right of women, even though during their first press conference, they did say, the spokesperson, Zabiullah Mujahid, did say that we will respect the rights of women and girls according to Sharia law. Now, of course, we know their interpretation of Sharia law in the past has been the most strict and the most violent in some cases towards women. So this still is a big question mark. However, I think what many analysts are saying, this is the point where the U.S. does have some leverage because we do still have control over the assets of the Afghan government that are in the U.S. that are being frozen. And that could be a leverage as a carrot to be offered to the Taliban. Uh, and we can say, you know, if you are going to rule the country and we want the country's assets, these are the things that we want from you. And those kinds of negotiations, as well as negotiations over the military assets of the U.S. military that are still left in Afghanistan, those are the two things that can be used for leverage and negotiation. 
although it is very unlikely that the Taliban will be willing to give up any of those military assets that they have captured. And this is something that the White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has also admitted. Yes, there's some major challenges and concerns on this issue as this story just develops on an hourly basis. Time now for a quick break, and when we come back, another earthquake compounds problems facing Haiti, a country still reeling from the assassination of their president last month. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype. Patsy Whittakuswara, VOA White House correspondent, and Shana Estulin, political and foreign affairs correspondent. Well, Shana, Haiti has been hit by a series of natural disasters in the past, including Hurricane Matthew in 2016. The deadliest was in 2010, which killed more than 200,000 people and caused extensive damage to the country's infrastructure and economy. Now we have this earthquake that occurred last Saturday, along with a tropical storm happening not too long after the president of Haiti was assassinated. So the problems there are just compounded and overwhelming the people. Oh, sure. And then, of course, COVID, too, has been straining hospital resources in Haiti as well. So it's a very, very difficult situation. And, and the scope of the devastation from the earthquake is still unclear. As we talk today, Haitian officials say that over 2,000 people have been killed. But rescue crews expect that number to go up just based on the number of people missing. And as you mentioned, you had a tropical storm that blew through the country, which makes it more difficult to rescue people. You've got hospitals struggling with COVID. As you also mentioned, the overarching problem here is just the sheer level of political instability in the country, a country not particularly known for its high level of political stability to begin with, given that the president was assassinated last month. There's this struggle to replace him still. There are reports of roving gangs, and outside aid groups are now sounding the alarm that they might be attacked by these roving gangs, their supplies might be stolen, or worse. Added to this is this general sense of fatigue. They're worried that people won't want to donate money that's really desperately needed because after the 2010 earthquake, where, as you mentioned, over 200,000 people were killed, over a million people left homeless, so much money was poured into Haiti. And a lot of that money, well, people don't really know where it went. It didn't go to the people that needed it. It went to line Haitian officials' pockets. So there's a concern now that people in other countries may not want to donate this time around, even though so many people really are desperate and, and, and need that outside money to help them. Yeah, that experience about money from the outside coming in in 2010 and then just creating a culture of corruption and also dependence on outside, on international aid, that is actually, you know, one of the things that a lot of people are talking about when they talk about places like Haiti, where the good intention of people from around the world to help others in need just becomes something so toxic and instead becomes counterproductive to the country's economy and really just creating a new set of problems, right? On this particular latest natural disaster, the U.S. has sent in help. The U.S. Agency for International Development has sent in a search and rescue team on the ground. They're continuing to conduct their assessments and respond as they need. The U.S. Southern Command has also established a joint task force Haiti to conduct U.S. military operations in support of the USAID team. They're coordinating, obviously, with the Haiti team and international partners and, and others. This is something that the White House is paying attention to and saying that 
they stand ready to provide this kind of emergency response that's just necessary in this horrible, horrible human tragedy. Yes, it certainly is. And I hope the people of Haiti get the assistance that they need. Want to get in our last topic. U.S. officials are recommending booster shots of the COVID-19 Pfizer and Moderna vaccines eight months after the second shot. This recommendation came after the president's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, laid out the data indicating that the antibodies provided by the vaccines decline over time and higher levels of antibodies may be required to protect against the more highly contagious Delta variant, which is spreading across the U.S. So Shana, what has been reaction to this booster shot? I'll just say that we have evidence of the booster shots, evidence that suggests that they actually work. And that data comes from Israel. Israel's been ahead of the curve when it comes to vaccinations. They started earlier than the United States, and they've also vaccinated many more people. Initially, it was a big success, but they've been facing this surge of COVID cases, and more than half of the new COVID cases are among vaccinated people. And there's evidence that vaccinated people don't get as sick, but it's still very concerning that they're getting infected at all. So in the past two weeks or so, Israel has been giving out these booster shots, these third shots to folks 60 years and older, and they're going to expand that as well. And early data suggests that the booster shots are highly effective at preventing infection, although more has to be studied and, and on a wider basis. And the data that's sort of coming out from Israel is influencing the United States' decision to give booster shots to folks here. And it's going to go to the most sort of vulnerable populations first, the people that got it first here in the United States. So older people and immunocompromised people will be getting it first. And then it's expected that more people will, will get it as well as their own vaccine timeline continues. But public health experts are also trying to remind people that it's all good and well to give booster shots to protect people that are vaccinated. But if you really want to combat this virus, you've got to focus on people who are not vaccinated. That will make really sort of the big difference in slowing down the pandemic. That's absolutely right. And that's a point that has been made by journalists to the White House. You know, why are we giving booster shots? It's like giving a life jacket to people who already have life jackets, while we see people around the world have not even had their first shot, right? I mean, this is something that humanitarian organizations have tried to stress many, many times. In fact, we had a statement from the one campaign that says that the decision to authorize booster shots for all Americans, not just immunocompromised or high-risk groups, all Americans, threatens to widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And it's really just an outrageous decision at a time when elderly and health workers in low-income countries still are not getting their shots. So U.S. and other wealthy countries must be mindful of this fact, and particularly when the WHO, the World Health Organization, they're asking for a moratorium for booster shots at least until the end of September. So the Biden administration's decision to have these booster shots for all Americans beginning the week of September 20th is somewhat mindful or respectful of the request by the WHO, but is still getting uh, a lot of pushback from humanitarian organizations. And President Biden himself addressed this when he said that, I know that a lot of world leaders are saying America shouldn't do this at a time when others still in so much need. And he says, I disagree. We can do both. That has always been the line from the White House that we can do both. We can vaccinate Americans and we can also help vaccinate the world. And one of the examples that they gave, that Jeff Zins gave, this is the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, is that in the coming months, while the U.S. is providing about 100 million booster shots to Americans beginning September, the U.S. is also going to donate about 200 
100 million shots. So that's the line that they're saying, although humanitarian organization says, if you help these needy countries first, if you just give all your doses to them, there will be less variants and you will not need a booster shot. And that's their argument as well. To add to that, nearly 7 million Americans have gotten their first doses of vaccines in the past two weeks, marking the highest rate of first doses administered since June. So this is a sign that perhaps there is success in convincing people to get vaccinated. And also the, the fact that the Delta variant is really just ravaging the country. There's still a lot of political disagreements, even about masks and children going back to school. So in fact, some people are saying if we had gotten the virus more under control with the masking and with the obviously free and readily available vaccine, then we would not have needed to go to this point where we are offering booster shots just eight months after the second shot. We'll have to end on that note. My thanks to our panelists, Patsy Witta-Kuzwara, VOA White House correspondent, and Shana Estulin, political and foreign affairs correspondent. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.